Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dressed listeners, over the last six years, we have discussed countless fashion exhibitions that have been mounted all over the world. But one thing that we haven't explored quite enough is all of the effort, thought, and labor that goes into making them happen. And that is what we're going to do today. So today we're invited behind the velvet rope, so to speak, to learn a little bit more about what went into the mounting of the Women Dressing Women exhibition, which is now on view at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art through March 10th, 2024. On Tuesday, the exhibition curators, Melissa Huber and Karen Van Gotzenhoven, joined us to talk about the incredible designers and pieces featured in the show. And today, Melissa joins us again to talk about the mounting of the show, which was almost entirely produced by women. From the curatorial team to the conservators, the exhibition photography, and even the graphic design, this show about women dressing women was lovingly produced largely, but not entirely, by women. So without further ado, we pick back up with exhibition curator Melissa Huber to get some of the inside scoop on some of the hidden labor and design decisions that went into making the show. Also something that I think deserves to be highlighted, and I I want to point this out because I think about probably 95% of the visitors that actually visit the exhibition are not going to pick up on this. Um, Melissa, you and I were chatting at the show and you mentioned that the very first vitrine that we see as we walk down the stairs and we come into the show, that this was a very special challenge to execute. So could you describe this kind of mirrored case um, that visitors first encounter when they enter into the exhibition, because this is also a very, very smart fashion history reference that people might not pick up on as well. Yeah. So when we were photographing objects for the book, we wanted to treat each section of, of the catalog and exhibition with a slightly different treatment. So we have this this V-shaped wall that we used as a starting point. And for one of for three of the sections, it's just white walls. But for the visibility section, which focuses on the early 20th century, we had our team come in and we actually adhered mirror panels to the original photography set, which are these beautiful, heavy, scary eight foot by eight foot panels of glass, which was really important because we wanted to have seamless material and to really capture the garment in in the round. And this reference point comes from fashion copyright practices, in fact. And of course, mirrors were so integral to fashion houses and you see so much documentation of them. In fact, 
Tayat has illustrated Lentland BNA's workrooms in, in the early 1920s and shows that mirror. And if you visit Jean Lanvin's original offices, she has this incredible mirror on a track that sort of moves around her studio. And, and you often see documentation of that. But in the early 1930s, Madeleine Viennet, who had been one of the leading designers sort of in the, the battle against copywriting French fashion, had instituted this practice of using a V-shaped mirror in order to document her designs. And she would put together these registration books every season of all of her looks, which had the model number and the season, which are incredible tools for researchers. And when you look at her early ones from the 20s, there's often more elaborate backdrops. Sometimes there's a tapestry or a little table with a vase or some sort of decorative gesture. But then she came up with this solution of using this V-shaped mirror, which captures the garment from all three sides, which I think is also, it's so ingenious. It's its beautiful. It's striking. It gives such great visibility. It's practical. You don't, you know, if you look at earlier books, there's like three photos together on a page, sometimes four, and she's able to capture it all in, in one view. I think it's also kind of fascinating when you think about what fashion was doing during those prior moments in history as well. So there's examples of registration photos from the House of Worth and the BNA archives and the Fashion Museum bath. And you just see like a single pane of glass that captures the back of a garment, which we know in the 19th century often had a train or a bustle or some element. And in a lot of ways, I think fashion was very much about the front and back view. But then with the modernity of, of dress during the early 20th century, you have so many designers like VNA, Augusta Bernard, Louise Boulanger, who are really working in the round, really draping, working on the bias, considering the body from every angle, introducing asymmetry, and making sure that you capture the side views of a garment became really integral to, to documenting those designs. So yeah, we were we were excited to sort of replicate that gesture and pay homage to that process and sort of insert an element of fashion history there while also creating this just you know, spectacular moment to invite our visitors into the galleries and really sort of make a case for the impact of the beauty and just um, striking designs that many important women designers have have introduced throughout time. Yes, it's such a fun fashion history fact that listeners, um, if you go with your friends and you haven't, they haven't seen the exhibition yet, you can wow your friends with your um, V-shaped mirror is a reference to <laughs> VNA and copywriting. You know, too, we um, at FIT Special Collections, we have Lucille's not only sketches, but we also have her photographs where she was kind of doing something this similar. She wasn't using the mirror technique yet. These are from the 19-teens, actually, but she was documenting her designs in black and white from the front and the back. And, and it's they're, they're very, very um, interesting, especially when you pair them up with the sketches. It's really nice to have that kind of like more complete narrative. But yeah, copyright was a, was a huge concern. Um, we also have at FIT, if any of our people are interested in working on copyright as fashion historians, we have a very rare book that is about the history of fashion copyright lawsuits before 1913. And there's a whole tome on it, and it's in French. And it's from that time period. So primary source, if anybody's looking for it, we have it. Amazing. One of the other aspects of the exhibition design that I actually had to ask about because I couldn't quite figure out what was going on, but I did notice is that there are some very interesting kind of like graphic headpieces that have been added to the mannequins. What is the story behind those? Yeah, so we try to do something a little interesting with with every exhibition when it comes to considering accessories and and hair and 
though we have worked with hairdressers in the past and done more typical wigs, more and more we try to add a sort of contemporary flourish to our installations. And for this show, we had the great privilege of working with the American artist Caitlin Keogh, who who's actually a painter. And Keogh was really wonderful to work with. She often draws upon fashion history in a lot of her artwork. She frequently incorporates the female body. She draws a lot of motifs like the dressmaker's dummy into her work or materials that we might connect with fashion, scissors, rope ribbons. So her work had been on our radar for for some time and she ha- she's had a sort of interesting career as well. I know at one point she worked with vintage fashion and sewed garments and had even worked as a technical illustrator at one point putting together tech packs and and she's talked about how the process of of putting together croquis for fashion drawings and drawing those technical designs for tech packs was actually really informative to her own process because it introduced this need for clarity in her painting, which is very illustrative. So we approached her and she was really excited to to work on the show. And we spent substantial time going through all of the pieces and talking about some of the exhibition themes and ideas. And they became a really interesting way to amplify some of the ideas and themes and also just introduce another layer of reading and dialogue to the exhibition. So in the app, Gallery, for example, we had talked about this idea of creating a, a female-led canon of a fashion design and the mannequins that we repurposed. I can't remember if I told you this when you came to visit, but we actually recycled them from a past exhibition, Heavenly Bodies, Fashion in the Catholic Imagination. So we wanted to, we had to work with like a very specific style of mannequin, which was a bit challenging, but the the art historical references were sort of fascinating in, in relation to the show, one of them was Michelangelo's La Pieta, and the other was actually a a statue of uh, Joan of Arc from the Cathedral in Reims, which were, of course, sort of filtered through a high fashion mannequin filter at the end of the day when they were produced. But they had this very demure expression. They were meant to be contemplative for for heavenly bodies. They have these sort of um, closed eyes. So we needed to do something to give them a little more prominence and, and agency for this show. So we decided to really just lean into this idea of statuary, and they were repainted with this gray stone-like finish. And one of the first designs that Caitlin came up with was these these headdresses for the Apple Gallery, which really underscored this idea of the the objects and and the mannequins and the designers represented really functioning as caryatids or sort of the pillars of, of fashion history. So that was a really nice gesture there. And then in some of the other ones, various motifs come into play from her own work, from artists and illustrators that she admires, like Aubrey Beardsley. And then there's a couple sly references there too, to some of the early design house logos. So the section that includes objects that are focused on tailoring and menswear um, have scissors in them, which Elizabeth I shared Hawes. with Hawes. Mm-hmm, <laughs> exactly. So it's very exciting to me to see those giant scissors on on the head of the mannequin with Haw's trousers. And she also borrowed that circular structure from Madeline V&A's logo to go back to V&A, which 
holds the the woman in, inside the circle, which sits atop a pillar. And she did a really interesting thing where we'd been talking also about Ray Kawakubo and this idea of the circle and starting from zero. So those little decorative like nubs and flourishes around the outer perimeter of the circle, she flipped to the inner circle. So it's sort of combining a few different ideas into one. So there's a lot of subtle gestures within the headpieces that you can pick up and have fun looking for as you go through the show. Yeah, I knew the Haas one immediately because, you know, I'm a huge Haas fan. <laughs> yeah, there's so much that goes into exhibition design and the installation of these exhibitions that the public purely doesn't see necessarily all the time. And, and that is the art of it in actuality is making sure that you don't see some of these things. The headpiece is, of course, being an exception, but but it's not as simple as just putting clothes on a mannequin. You guys were doing those historic 19-teen silhouettes on those repurposed mannequins from Heavenly Bodies. And a lot of times people don't realize that there is padding and understructures and there's like conservation concerns that goes into all of this. There's a ton of work that goes into this. Absolutely. And, and a huge team involved in all of the entire process. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. 
Melissa, I know that uh, one of your favorite pieces in the exhibition is the quote-unquote kangaroo dress by Isabel Toledo. And it's so-called the kangaroo dress because of its very innovative construction that, that creates a little handy pouch or pocket. And we didn't have time to delve into this entirely. But when we were chatting about this, you mentioned something that was fascinating to me. You mentioned that Isabel had interned at the Costume Institute. And I had no idea. Can you tell us about this? So between 1980 and, and 1984, she worked in the department during Diana Vreeland's tenure. She was involved in any variety of responsibilities, but she had a particular aptitude, as, as we can imagine, for working with garments. And um, she spent a lot of time in the conservation lab examining garments from the inside out and um, essentially conserving them for display. And she's talked a lot in her incredible autobiography, Roots of Style, how her time at the Met really taught her to think about fashion as an art form and how she learned so much from looking at the work of many other women designers that are featured in this exhibition and in our permanent collection, like Madeleine Viennet, Madame Gray, Claire McCardle and, and Bonnie Cashin. So it's kind of an exciting piece in terms of thinking about lineage and connection and intergenerational influences, and also just an incredibly striking design that I think really harnesses and uses gravity to incredible advantage, playing with the, the hand of the textile and the drape of it, rather than fighting against gravity, which often happens in fashion as well. Well, that makes so much sense now, knowing that she had looked at all of those designers that you just mentioned, Viona, McArdle, Madame Gray from the inside out, because she really picked up their lineage and legacy as an innovative pattern maker. That is the first thing that I always think about when I think about Isabel's clothes is she was exceptionally avant-garde in the way that she conceptualized three-dimensional space. And that is all of her exceptional skill as a pattern maker and draper. Yeah. So when you look at the kangaroo dress, the front of the dress is comprised of, of two pattern pieces. It's this long, slinky black dress and in this incredible feat. The back panel of the dress starts from the upper shoulder and wraps all the way around the front and pulls into this really elegantly draped pouch pocket, like a, like a kangaroo, which you could actually put things in if, if you were bold enough to do so. It's a, an exciting piece to me for a couple of reasons. One is that it's the first acquisition of Isabel Toledo's work to our permanent collection. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is incredibly exciting. And anyone who's familiar with Toledo's work may know that it's it can be quite rare to come across her designs. She didn't produce in, in great quantity. And in fact, she did a little better in foreign markets like in Japan and, and Europe. And I think that people just loved their Toledo clothing and they really wore it and cherished it and held on to it. So it's very rare to come across her pieces on, on the secondhand market. And this piece came to us through Ruben Toledo, her, her partner who she had an incredible relationship and um, creative partnership with. And in fact, this, this piece she's talked about as liquid drapery. And she's described how looking at Ruben mm. Toledo's fashion illustrations have inspired her to think about bringing this element of calligraphy or ink on paper to some of her designs, too. So it's sort of exemplary of this symbiotic creative partnership that they had together. Toledo would 
drape and sew and design in 3D and Ruben would document her pieces and, and, and illustrate them for her. Um, and in fact, he recently just donated an illustration of the kangaroo dress to our library special collections, which we're in the process of digitizing and excited to, to share with our visitors as well. Melissa, thank you for joining us again to pull back the curtain a bit on the role of the CI as an educational resource and what actually goes into mounting fashion exhibitions. Listeners, it may appear to be simple. Clothes go on mannequins, said mannequins go on display. But trust us, there is so much more to making a show like this happen. So much more. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, you and I both took an entire class dedicated to this at FIT in the Fashion and Museum Studies program. It's an entire semester long class about mannequin dressing specifically. So yeah, uh, it's an art form in and of itself. And really, from the curatorial concept to all of the hands that dress the mannequins with archival care, to producing the exhibition catalog, and even publicizing the show so we come to see it, this requires a team. And in this case, a team of women. Thank you to all of you who brought us this lovely exhibition. Your hidden labor is acknowledged and seen. Yes, thank you so much. I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider all of the wonderful work of the people behind the scenes and seams next time you get dressed. If you cannot make it to the Women Dressing Women exhibition at the Met in New York City, which is on view until March 10th, 2024, you can pick up a copy of the really, really wonderful exhibition catalog from our dressed bookshelf. Um, There is a link to that bookshelf in our show notes, but you can also find it at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash dressed. You'll find more than 120 of our favorite fashion history titles there available to purchase via an independent bookseller. And also, I just want to mention, you can listen to Dressed ad-free if you would like. Uh, For just $3 a month, you can subscribe to our exclusive content. There is also a link to that in our show notes, and that is the ad-free version of the show. You can also find a link to our classes, trips, and tours in our show notes or on our website at dressedhistory.com. Part one of April's ongoing class series, The Great Designers, is now open for registration. And you can learn more and sign up at dressedhistory.com. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, and we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore history, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. If you'd like to find the Instagram content related to this week's episodes, you can search the hashtag dressed. 343 and dress 344. That's dress 343 and dress 344. More dress coming your way on Tuesday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.